Good morning. It is great to see everybody here today. Let's do just a little bit of housekeeping before we get started. What I mean by that is just a, a few things to make you aware of. Number one, stick around for Sunday school today. If you don't normally do that, really want to invite you to. We've been in a study of personal apologetics, defending our faith by learning to love the Lord our God with all of our mind. Today, I'm going to be teaching on defending your faith online. It is a very, very real issue in our culture. So I hope you'll stick around for that. Number two, there are some exciting things coming up in men's ministry and women's ministry here at Libby Christian Church. A lot of meetings have been going on here in the, the last month or so, and there's some cool stuff coming. Starts this Wednesday at 9 a.m. with a new women's Bible study. So ladies, if you're available in the mornings, want to invite you to come and be a part of that. There's more information in the bulletin. Be sure and check that out and see if it's something that appeals to you, but we want you to know that you are invited to be a part of that. Then be watching for other things coming up in women's ministry as well as men's ministry. In the coming months, there'll be a, a number of things that will be popping up, so be sure and watch for those things. Number three, next Sunday, we are going to kick off, it'll be the official launch of our Gap Feeding Partnership with IDES. Now, Gap stands for God Always Provides, and IDES stands for International Disaster Emergency Services. IDES is a ministry that we have supported for a long time. They feed people around the world after natural disasters, as well as doing a lot of other things. But the GAP feeding program is about getting sustainable food to people after hurricanes, earthquakes, tsunamis, different things that happen internationally. We're going to be a part of that by packaging 150,000 meals. 150,000 meals. We're going to do that on March 12th, but next Sunday we're going to sign people up to be a part of that. So there'll be team leaders walking around in gray t-shirts. You see a few of them this morning that say Gap. They're going to be signing people up and we hope you'll be a part of it. It's going to take about 300 people to get this task done in one day. So I hope you'll be a part of that. It is a blast, but it has a great eternal impact. And the other side of what's going to happen next Sunday is an offering that we'll be taking. We've set a goal of $13,000. Now it's going to take $39,000 in order to pay for all of this, but we need to raise $13,000 of that thirty-nine. dollars And so next Sunday, we're going to take that offering. We hope you'll be praying about how you want to be involved, not only in the offering, but also on March 12th, on the day that we package all of that. So be praying about those things and be talking among yourselves about what level of involvement you want to have. But next Sunday is going to be a fun day as we watch people sign up and then we get to see what God does through that offering. So be praying about those things. In fact, we will pray about those in just a minute. I'm going to ask Deanie to come up and lead us in prayer. But first, I've got a pretty good joke for you. Now, let me just say, there's people like John Hickey that come to church not for biblical teaching. They come for the good joke. And this morning, John said to me, well, I hope you've got a good one. And I, I promised him a good one, so here it is. When my wife caught me standing on the bathroom scale, sucking in my stomach, she laughed. Ha ha, that's not going to help. I replied, sure it does. It's the only way I can see the numbers. <laughs> John's best I got. and Obviously, you're surrounded by people without a sense of humor. <laughs> so, Deanie, pray for us. 
Okay, as I'm praying, you guys pray along too. Isn't it neat to know that God somehow or other can decipher that? Uh, mm -hmm. He tells us that he hears our prayers and he answers our prayers and we do them through his son Jesus. So pray along with me, okay? Father, as we come today, God, uh, we acknowledge that you are our God and there is no other. No other before you and no other after you. You're our creator, and uh, we understand that uh, we chose sin and were separated from you, and a wonderful uh, story of Jesus coming to our rescue. And so the uh, prayers that we offer up to you are heard because your son brings them to you. Your word tells us that. So thank you, God. And you've heard... Uh, Phil talking about some of the plans that the church has and things that are coming up and God we depend on you to uh, make those things fall into place because you don't call us to do things that you're not uh, going to provide for so we're asking your provision in that open up our ears and our hearts and our minds today to your word and that we would leave here with good things that'll help us in our life and to help us help those around us. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much, Deanie. On a fairly regular basis, people will ask me about the process of writing a sermon. It happens more than you might realize. They want to know where ideas come from. They want to know about the stages of sermon preparation, just the, the whole process of it. And I'm always happy to answer those questions. Sometimes it's a struggle to answer when they ask this particular one. Where did the idea for that sermon come from? I don't always have a, a clear-cut answer. Sometimes it's just nothing more than I was reading through my Bible and thought that'd be kind of an interesting sermon series, or I was driving down the road and this thought popped into my head, and so it's not always an intriguing answer to the question. But if somebody were to ask me about today's message and next Sunday's message, I have a pretty good answer. Here's the genesis of this sermon. This is where it began. Tina and I were watching a movie one night. That's where it began. Chris Hemsworth was the hero of the movie. He was a mercenary, a military contractor, and a young boy had been kidnapped, and Hemsworth's character was called in for a rescue. And as soon as he showed up on scene, the FBI running the, the whole situation or whoever it was, Hemsworth asked a question just, just like this, came out just like this. I, imagine me if I were Thor. That's, that's what I'm saying. He said, Proof of life, just like that, proof of life. And right there, a sermon series was born. Whoever it was that was in charge showed a picture that was taken that day of the little boy holding a newspaper, had that day's date on it. Apparently, that's one of the most familiar proof of life that there is in a situation like that. And that expression, proof of life, according to what I could discover on the internet, is most often used in regard to a kidnapping situation, particularly in particularly, there we go, in international settings or situations. So from there, I just launched into a study of the idea of proof of life. Someone having to prove that the person that they have kidnapped or the person in their custody is still alive. A proof 
of life. And it got kind of intriguing. Now, I've heard that expression before, usually in books or movies, so it wasn't a brand new thing. I've just never really bogged down in it, but this time grabbed my heart, and I went all kinds of different places in this exploration. One of those led me to Sven Liedl. Now, I know you've read a lot of Sven stuff. We all have. Sven Liedl, just a, a very popular author. He wrote a book on international travel secrets, and one of the chapters in his book is about kidnapping situations internationally and what is required when a proof of life is requested. Let me share with you some of the things that Sven had to say. It's, again, kind of intriguing, but at the same time, not eternally significant. There we go. Proof of life, according to Sven Liedl, Proof of life is made for unmistakable evidence that the hostage is alive. It is a natural action for any concerned family or company, as well as security agency, to take. It is my experience that emotions can sometimes drive a family or company to overlook its significance at the onset of negotiation. It's meaning the proof of life. By identifying the need to demand proof of life in the first communication with the kidnappers, the response consultant is beginning the process of rational and controlled decision-making. A successful confirmation of proof of life provides the first indication that there is an element of control that can be exercised over the kidnappers. The demand for proof of life, perhaps accompanied by a convincing willingness to cooperate with the kidnappers slash criminals, signals preparedness to negotiate. Proof of life also provides a confirmation throughout the case that negotiators are dealing with the right kidnap and criminal gang. Now this is really interesting. In the eyes of the kidnapper, proof of life gives a value to the ransom being offered and the work that has been done to acquire it. Sven goes on to say, the demand for proof of life will often result in the kidnappers asking questions of the hostage, an action that demonstrates to the hostage that the release is being negotiated, thus providing early reassurance. As my study continued on this idea of proof of life, I found my way to a 2007 article that was published by ABC News titled, Proof of Life, Seven Ways to Deal with Kidnapping. Now, boy, this, this made for some light reading. Both of these articles did. I was highly encouraged by the time this evening was over. But let me show you a couple of things that came out of this ABC article. Here you go. Lesson seven, how to avoid being kidnapped. I'm not going to share all seven with you, just the last one. How to avoid being kidnapped. Become a difficult target. Don't leave from point A to point B every day at the same time. Break your routine. Have three to five different ways to get, to, to get from home to work, home to school, home to the gym. Business travelers should think about the company they represent. Is it a household name? Is their name known as the CFO or the CEO of the company? If that's the case, a hotel clerk could sell information on your whereabouts to a kidnapping gang. Now, that's just some of the baseline stuff they wrote. You've already seen one highlighted thing. What's this next one? The lesson is one of eternal caution, but also one of hope. Because when there's communication from the kidnapper, that's when there's the chance that a loved one can return home. Now, with these two things that you just saw highlighted, here's the first one again. Become a difficult target. 
And number two, the lesson is one of eternal caution, but also one of hope. With that, the sermon series was born. That's where it began, with those two things. Well, it began with the proof of life, just that title. But when those two things popped up in the things that I was reading, I said, I want to preach this because those two things matter. Spiritually, this idea of proof of life is just as real as it is physically. The whole idea of kidnapping, being in the custody of the enemy, is as spiritual and as biblical as it is in international travel settings and circumstances where kidnapping is a reality. And so from there, I started looking for some scripture that would tie this whole thing together. And boy, did I find it. Join me in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to start in verse 1 and kind of set up our camp right here in this passage. So mark it in your Bible. If you're bouncing around to some of the other passages we look at, we're going to come back to Ephesians 5 a couple different times. So make sure you keep something right there in this page. The Apostle Paul writes these words. Listen to what he says. Verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetedness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord." Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and trying to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now keep your finger right there. It is not a secret to anyone in this room that we have an enemy named Satan, the devil. If you have been in Christ very long at all, even if you have not been in Christ long at all, that isn't a secret to you. It's something that everyone is aware of. And because we have this enemy, we have to always be on guard. We always have to be paying attention because he seeks to, well, we'll find out in just a minute, devour us. He seeks to destroy us. 
I want us to start out simply by looking at why that is. But in order to see it, we've got to build a little bit of understanding about who the devil is. Let's go to the book of James together. Keep your finger in Ephesians 5, but go to the book of James with me. One of the things that James, the half-brother of Jesus, makes very plain to us is that the devil knows who God is. The devil is fully aware of who Jesus is. He is not clueless when it comes to who the real supreme beings are. In fact, he not only knows it, but it causes something to happen deep within him. We're in James chapter 2, verse 19. Take a look at this. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Now, that's one of those things that the Bible tells us very plainly. The demonic realm, Satan and all of the demons, know exactly who God is. They know exactly who Jesus is. They know exactly who the Holy Spirit is. And they shudder. They shudder. Because they are also aware of this fact. There is no chance, listen to this, there is no chance for them to repent and be restored. When the angels fell from heaven, they fell forever. They are different than we are. There is no repentance for them. There is no coming back to a relationship with God. Their fate is sealed. And you might say, how do we know that? Well, it starts in places like this, the Gospel of John. John chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I have said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, Jesus says that is his purpose in coming, that all those that God brings to him will be saved. If a person looks upon the Lord Jesus Christ unto salvation, they will receive it. But the demons, Satan, the devil, they do not have that privilege. They don't have that ability. And we know that because of the way the story ends. If you have read the end of their story, you know that repentance is not possible. Their fate is sealed. Join me in the book of Revelation, will you? Revelation chapter 20, starting in verse 7. This is prophetic writing, but one of the things you need to know about biblical prophecy is it is really little more than history written in advance. If biblical prophecy is laid out, it'll happen. Take it to the bank. It's as good as already done. Biblical prophecy is history written in advance. So this is what we read in verse 7 of chapter 20. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. 
But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's the end of their story. So even if they were to come back and beg Jesus for repentance, beg Jesus for salvation, beg Jesus for restoration, it will not happen. Their fate is sealed. And as a direct result of that, the devil, Satan, is pretty upset. And he has a plan that he is carrying out. You are in the center of his crosshairs. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 reads like this. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You're that someone. Every Christian is counted among that word, someone. He is seeking someone, me, you, every believer, to devour. He wants to destroy us. Because if his fate is sealed, the only joy he has is in taking God's children with him. His only joy is in trying to take as many believers as possible. And he has, since the beginning of time, been working very, very hard at it. You might wonder exactly how is it that he pulls this off. And that's a legitimate question. So let's go to the book of 2 Timothy together to find the answer. 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 22. Paul writes to Timothy, his young son in the faith, So flee youthful passions. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So here's the goal. This is the way the enemy goes about this. He seeks to capture every believer and get us into a place where we will do his will. When that happens, we've been kidnapped, stolen from the Lord, kidnapped and in the presence of the enemy where we start to do his will. And when that happens, when we are doing the will of the enemy, proof of life becomes evident. Proof of life that we are now in his presence, in his camp, becomes very, very obvious. Now, before we get into the proof of life that the devil would offer about us, let's talk about what is not proof of life. Modern Christianity gives Satan way too much credit. Modern Christianity really does. I've probably been guilty of it just like everybody else. We end up blaming Satan for things that he really had nothing to do with. Now, here's the, the thing about that. Satan will take all the credit he can get. So if us blaming him for things that he had nothing to do with gives him a deeper position in our life or more power in our lives, well, in his mind, he wins. Nothing wrong with that. 
So one of the things that modern Christianity has to do is back up and recognize that not every bad thing that takes place in our life is a direct result of the enemy's activity. Let me give you an example of that. I want you to imagine that you pull up to the ATM and for whatever reason you have to get out of your vehicle in order to stick the card in and get your money. So you're standing now in front of that ATM machine and you put your card in and you push all the right buttons. You just want to do a fast withdrawal. You're hoping to get $60 out. So you push quick withdraw, $60. And up across the screen, it starts to flash these horrible words, insufficient funds, insufficient funds, insufficient funds. So you start cursing the devil because of your financial difficulties, believing that the insufficient funds in your checking account are a direct result of demonic activity in your life, and you are absolutely convinced of it. Folks, that is not proof of life from the enemy that Satan has done something. That is a proof of a lack of discipline in your life that you've gone to Pizza Hut or Libby Sports too much. That's really what that is. We tend to blame the devil for all kinds of things like that, things that really are simply a result of our choices or a lack of discipline in our lives. If we can back out of that and recognize that those are those things that we need to take responsibility for, we can turn the tide of them without it having to become a spiritual battle. I like the way Ron Carpenter speaks about things like this. Take a look. Frankly, sometimes it's easier to super-spiritualize something and blame the devil than to understand a need or personal flaw and take ownership for it. Sometimes we just need to take ownership for some of the things that have happened in our life. We need to recognize that a need exists that has to be addressed. And if we'll address it, we can turn the tide of it. Not everything like that is a proof of life that we have been taken captive by the enemy. So please don't give him too much credit. Don't give him reason to believe that he is more powerful in your life than he is. Because when we do that, we start to take something away from the Lord. We start to take something away from Jesus' role in our life. So be careful of that easy trap. So let's go back then. If that's not a proof of life and things like that are not a proof of life that we have been taken captive by the enemy what is? What are some of the things we need to look for? Well, Ephesians chapter 5 laid some out. Were you looking? Let's go back there. You might not have been because these are some things that we don't necessarily want to see. Here we go. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetedness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. There are at least three proofs of life that come out of this, proofs that the enemy could use to show that he has a believer. The first one, sexual immorality. Now, that's not hard for any of us to imagine, particularly if you've grown up in the church and you know about the things that God would call out as sexually immoral. 
it's not a hard thing for us to understand or grasp that that would be a proof of life because it is so very visible. It is something that is difficult to hide. Adultery, fornication, pornography, lust, and on and on and on. Those are those things that we've heard preached repeatedly and even to the point that as they have been preached or they have been taught in different settings, we almost just skip like a rock across water over the surface of those things. Even have gone so far as to try to change what Scripture says about sexual immorality by saying things like this, well, when the Bible was written, culture was different than it is today. Those things don't apply to us like they did to those that it was written to. Well, here's the truth, my friends. God hadn't changed his point of view on any of those things. He, he hasn't changed any of that. If God says it, he means it. And it isn't just a cultural thing to know that sexual immorality leads us away from the Lord. Every time leads us away from the Lord. So there are these huge measures in Scripture that are placed there to keep us away from that because sexual immorality is this massive open door into the camp of the enemy. So we stay away from it. That one's not hard for us to grasp. But covetedness, did you catch that? Covetedness comes right behind it. Now, the Bible would put in parentheses, that is, idolatry, would put that right behind that word covetedness. But it will leave us really scratching our heads saying, how do those two things go together? Covetedness and sexual immorality. Why would they be written in a list this way where it would seem like one is just as important as the other? It's simple. It is really simple. Both of those things, covetedness and sexual immorality, are about the desires of the flesh, wanting something that is not ours. That's where that comes from. That's why those two things are placed in equal standing in Scripture. Now, there has to be other places in the Bible that would back that up just so that we can see it in, in the plainest of ways, and there are. Let's go to the book of First John together. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. The old apostle John writes these words. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. I started that out by saying the old Apostle John. John was the oldest of the apostles. He outlived all the others. He's the only one to have died a natural death. The other apostles were martyred for their faith. John writes this later in life. He's got a few years behind him. He knows what he's talking about. That's why there is so much power in words like this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Been there, done that. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, sexual immorality, and the desires of the eyes, covetedness, and pride of life, tying both together, is not from the, world, from the Father, but is from the world. The world's passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. See how he connects those two? They're placed side by side. 
desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes? Well, one of the the greatest proof of life demonstrations that the enemy can give are those two things. We're so caught up in idolatry that we forget who God is. We are chasing the things that we covet so strongly that we forget to chase God. We forget to pursue a relationship with Him. And if we are not pursuing a relationship with Him, we are falling backwards in our relationship with Him. There is no neutral. We're either moving forward or we are moving backwards. And covetedness and sexual immorality are two sure ways for us to move backwards. And move far enough backwards, you fall into the enemy's camp and you are taken captive by him as he seeks to devour you. That's the way that works. That's the way that happens. So those two things are placed right there. Now, here's another easy trap. We may be able to look at that and say, well, there's no proof of life that the enemy could offer on my behalf because I'm not wrestling with sexual immorality and I'm not wrestling with covetedness. I've gotten to a place where I am content with all that I have, so I am okay. There is no proof of life where I am concerned. Oh, my friends, did you read on in Ephesians? You're talking about Ephesians chapter 3, but did you listen to verse 4? Or chapter 5, verse 3, did you listen to verse 4? Well, let's go back and take a look again. Hopefully you have your Bibles right there. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Now, we want to go from verse 3 to verse 5 and skip verse 4 altogether because that just makes it so much easier in discussions like this. But we can't. In order to get from verse 3 to verse 5, you have no choice but to go right through verse 4. And verse 4 says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. One of the proof of life issues or demonstrations that the enemy can offer on our behalf is our mouth. Boy, don't you wish that wasn't in Scripture? Don't you wish we could cut verse 4 out? And other places like it, filthiness, crude talk, crude joking. If we could get rid of that, boy, life would be so much easier. We could just point fingers at everybody else and say, look, they've been held captive by the enemy, but not me. This one turns some fingers towards all of us. It would be nice if we could remove it, but we can't. So we have to address it. We have to face it and determine what we're going to do with it. Well, just like the other two, there has to be other places in Scripture that help us understand why this is so important, and there are. Let's go to the Gospel of Luke together. Luke chapter 6, verse 43. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, 
his mouth speaks. Hmm. Out of the abundance of his heart, the mouth speaks. Mouth becomes a reflection of the relationship. The mouth becomes a reflection of who we belong to. Have we been held captive by God or are we held captive by the enemy? How do we know? Well, oftentimes, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It becomes a proof of life for the enemy. If we're not careful, that's the case. So whatever you do, learn to control that. Book of James would talk about that same thing. The mouth, though it is small, can cause all kinds of damage, including damage in our relationship with God. It is a a stronghold for the enemy. So be careful of it. Be very careful of it. Because the enemy knows, Satan knows, the devil knows how easy it is to get us through our mouth. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So we have to be careful of it. If not, it becomes a proof of life for the enemy. So that takes us back then to this question. And we started this in our discussion of who the devil is. What is his goal? What is his purpose? Well, we've already said that his fate is sealed. It's already a done deal. And so he just wants to take as many people with him as possible. And he is seeking to devour everyone that he can. And when he devours a person, one of the proof of life that that has happened or proofs of life that that has happened is reflected in whose will we are working towards. Let that soak in for just a second. Now, we looked at a passage from 2 Timothy just a minute ago. I really like the way the NIV says this. Take a look. And that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. The goal or the purpose of the enemy when he devours a Christian is to get you to a place where you are no longer doing the will of the Father, but now you are doing His will. You're accomplishing what He wants done. Maybe the story of Cynthia Ann Parker will illustrate that better than anything that I could possibly offer. In the mid-1800s, Cynthia Ann Parker lived in West Texas. That was during the Indian Wars, the settling of the West, during a time that, that was very, very, very difficult for folks on the frontier. Cynthia Ann Parker was eight or nine years old when the Cheyenne Indians came upon their homestead and killed her parents, killed other family members, and took her captive. So they took her back to their camp. She was seen about four years later living as a member of the Cheyenne tribe. A person that saw her actually was allowed to approach her and ask her if she would like to come with them, and she wanted no part of that. Within four years, this young girl had been assimilated into this new tribe. She was living as a Cheyenne Indian. By the age of 17, she was married and started to bear children. About 10 years after that, she was taken, after her husband had been killed, she was taken out of that tribe and and brought back into her birth culture, and she was never able to adapt again. She tried to escape several times until eventually, unable to escape, she starved herself to death. 
and that's how she died. The whole time wanting to just go back to that tribe. Well, that's that same type of thing that the enemy wants to do. Once he has kidnapped a believer, he wants to so assimilate you into his tribe that you're doing his will, living like you belong to him, living like that is the natural place for you. It is the exact same concept. And so when we find ourselves in a place where we are doing his will, we can pretty well accept that we have become a part of his tribe. And that's, that's kind of scary. That's kind of terrifying, actually. And I don't want it to be that way. Because in the midst of all of this, and it was a struggle for me today because I hate to, to dedicate most of a sermon to talking about the devil, talking about the enemy. But eventually, in, in every message like that, we come back to the point of good news. And we actually saw some of it detailed for us in the ABC article that was presented. Let me show it to you. It was the second, let me get my fingers right, was the second thing that was highlighted. The lesson is one of eternal caution, but also one of hope. This whole lesson is one of eternal caution. That's what Peter was talking about. But it is also one of hope. Because you see, here's the thing. When the devil offers a proof of life, according to what we learned from Sven Liedel in this ABC article, when the devil offers a proof of life on our behalf, he shows it not only to God, but he exposes it to us. Because a proof of life from the devil will always be sin. A proof of life from the devil will always be sin. And when that is exposed, not only to God, God's already aware of it, but when it is exposed to us, we get the privilege of doing something about it. We get the privilege of bringing that back to God. It is a proof of life, not only to the Lord, but it is a proof of life that we have found our way into the enemy's camp and we need to get out. And once we're aware of that, there is a process that is unleashed within us if we want there to be. It's found in the book of 1 John, chapter 1, starting in verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So if we say that the proof of life that the enemy might offer, that he has a hold of us, if we say that that's not really true, ah, well, we're deceiving ourselves. But listen to this, verse 9. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. The beautiful thing that gets unlocked within us is the way of escape that God planned for us through his son, Jesus Christ. If we will confess our sins, the Bible says, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and, listen, purify us from all unrighteousness. Which means God will take us back. God will take us back. He will bring us back into his camp. We can leave the enemy's camp and come back into God's camp where we have been purified from all unrighteousness. God rescued us through his son, Jesus Christ. Isn't that great news? God came and got us when we had been held captive by sin rescued us and brought us out 
and showed the enemy once again that he is more powerful, that he always wins. That when we decide to do something with the proof of life that has been offered about us, when we choose to address that sin, God will come and get us. He's already done it through his son Jesus. Just accept the invitation and we can change where we're at. I love that part of the story. I love how that comes together. Because even in what appears to be this bad news, this proof of life that we have been kidnapped and held captive, God has a plan. And God worked his plan that many sent his son to the cross to die for us. He loved us that much. He would do whatever it took, whatever it takes to rescue us. And that's his son, Jesus Christ. And no matter what you do, you will never find better news than that. The Lord came and got us. The Lord came and got us. But I do want to remind you of this. There is a, a path back into the enemy's camp if we're not careful. Because he's seeking to devour those that have been rescued. He's seeking to devour, to take captive those that belong to the Lord. So we have to be careful. The first thing that was highlighted out of that article helps us remember that. Here it is again. Become a difficult target. Become a difficult target. Just make sure that that's the case. That you're always doing everything that you can to stay away from the enemy. To make sure that, that you're not offering a proof of life that says you have one foot with God and one foot with the enemy. That's a confused proof of life. It's going to lean one way or the other. So you become a difficult target. You make sure that when he's chasing you, he doesn't catch you because you have Jesus standing between you and him. You make sure that you are safe in the Lord always. I'll take you back. To Ephesians chapter 5. I'll show you what Paul says about this. Verse 7. Therefore do not become partners with them. Those that have been taken captive. Those that have been kidnapped. You be careful who you associate with. You be careful that you aren't flirting with the enemy's camp. Just don't become partners with them. There are two ways. I'll share this with you as the worship team comes up. There are two ways that we learn lessons in life. Number one, we do it through our own stubbornness, through our own experiences. We do it by banging our head against life from time to time until lessons soak in. That's a tough way to learn lessons. The second way that we learn things is by paying attention to those that have gone before us. Those that are older more mature, those that know what they're talking about. Now, I've learned lessons both ways. I've done it the hard way. A lot of you have as well. And I've chosen the other path also. I like that second one. I like to listen to those that have gone before, learn from their wisdom and their experience. We have the Apostle Paul. We have the Apostle Peter. We have the Apostle John. All three of them telling us about this type of stuff. Let's learn from them because they know what they're talking about. And if that isn't enough for you, if three apostles, the testimony of three apostles isn't enough, then you pay attention 
to other believers that are sitting around you right now. You ask them about things like this. You pay attention to what they have to say. And if they come to you bringing a warning that, that you're headed towards the enemy's territory, pay attention to them. They know what they're talking about. They have your best interest in mind. So listen closely because it is certainly easier to learn that way than it is to have to bang your head against life. And it is certainly easier once you have become a believer to remain in God's camp than to have to find your way out of the enemy's camp over and over and over again. So you become a difficult target. Don't even become a partner with those that live in that other camp. You just avoid it all the way around and you'll be much better off for it. You will walk closer with the Lord.